It is another terrific opportunity that we have this Lord's Day evening, having been blessed with hopefully a good day for each and, each, for each and every one of us. I might begin the lesson with another announcement or two, if I might, in addition to those that Brother Dennis shared with us earlier. Let's not forget our singing next Sunday afternoon at the 2 o'clock hour. Our, the uh, third Sunday singing in Putnam County is held each, each month on the third Sunday, of course. And this is our month to host that, and we're looking forward to that event. I think there's a sign-up sheet in the foyer, and those ladies that might wish to do so can sign up for to bring a, perhaps some kind of drink or a small a snack item. That certainly would be good, as we'll share that with, with those that come to be with us on that occasion. And again, let's continue to think about the members who are participating in that Bible Bowl effort, the work that has gone into that, and with such excitement, we still look forward to that day on September 8th, when, of course, the, the real Bible Bowl in all of its entirety will take place. But, oh, what a wonderful day that we had yesterday as our team finished in fourth place at the Center Grove Mini Bible Bowl effort. Let's remember not only those that were blessed to be able to take part yesterday, but others who were unable to be there but are still participating in our classes and studying. So let's continue to think about them and to encourage them in that good work. We continue this evening in our study of the book of Revelation. We have arrived at the 10th installment in that series, and all the while, as we have studied through that book, we have noted several powerful ideas after all, it is God's final revelation. It may well be said that the inspired penman laid down the pen forever with the completion of the book of Revelation. There are no inspired books having been written since, nor will there be in light of many passages both in Revelation and other books. So this book is a tremendously powerful closure, if you will, to the 66 wonderful books of the Bible. For several weeks, of course, we have been involved in studying that book sealed seven times, and we noted quickly what would occur when the various seals of that book were loosed. And along the way, we've been exposed to <clears throat> what may appear to be frightful revelations in a sense, but we've learned that there's a calming effect to those that are God's own, to those who are sealed on the forehead appropriately, to those who are in fact His own people for they're protected from the outbreaks and scourges of wrath that are revealed in these things. In fact, in addition to those, when we opened the seventh seal, we noted quickly that various judgments were poured forth as angels blew their trumpets. We've looked at five of them already. We briefly will need to review what happened when the fifth one blew his trumpet, for that will lead us into the basic study tonight, the sixth trumpet. But to hasten to that point, might I ask you to note with me a few vital comments? It would seem to me that these are worthy of our consideration very carefully, for we do not want to stray from the truth of them, especially given our previous lesson last Lord's Day evening. Those comments that I shared, the book of Revelation again was written initially to those beleaguered, persecuted saints that were serving under pagan Rome and were greatly persecuted and afflicted by that evil empire near the end of the first century A.D. That being noted, that immediately helps us appreciate two other grand passages, both indicating that these things must shortly come to pass. Thus, we must never lose sight of the fact that what is revealed in this book had its initialization, its initial fulfillment, if you will, in the days of the first century. That again reminds us of this. 
those historical facts that we noted last Lord's Day evening that occurred two, three, four, in some cases even 700 years after the first century, those would, of course, been powerful ideas for those first century saints to appreciate that God would punish Rome. She would not be perpetual and powerful in his eyes, but she, in light of her persecution of God's people and her refusal to submit to him, she too would be punished, brought down low, and that's exactly what transpired. But that brings me to note one final observation. As we read the book of Revelation, we mustn't only think that then this book had meaning for them. When you and I open the book and read it, it has meaning for us as well. Just because we live 20 centuries later doesn't mean that we don't also face various issues, problems, and difficulties associated with our servitude to Christ. And hence, this book is as meaningful to you and me as it ever was to them. That means these historical dates though they may be useful for us to consider and pertinent for our full understanding of the book, you and I can glean much from it even if we aren't masterful students of all the details of history. And that shall continue to be the case even tonight. With some of those comments made, would you consider with me then a brief recollection of the blowing of the fifth trumpet and how that leads us into the consideration of the sixth trumpet sounding? When we studied chapter 9 previously, we noted from a historical perspective that when the fifth trumpet blew, we were in a position of seeing a rather terrible and dramatic picture. These locusts, as they were, came from the smoke that arose out of a bottomless pit, and as that was described, it was in many ways an encompassing figure. We learned historically that seemed to relate most carefully to that Arab power that did in fact overrun the Roman Empire and its portions, for many of the descriptions seem to fit identically. But doesn't that also mean that as we considered that one, that was only the first of the three woes mentioned in Revelation 8.13? That means there are two more to come. Tonight, as we consider the sixth trumpet, we'll look at the second one. We must wait quite a while before we encounter the third one. The book of Revelation, as some of you have commented to me, it causes us to hang on. We don't get the full ending story immediately. The ending of the sixth trumpet will not be until Revelation 11, verse 14. So we perhaps have one more lesson to go before we come even to the point of considering the third grand woe that will begin to be revealed in that chapter. But for tonight, let us return to Revelation 9 and pick up the story in verse 13. Let us read through the end of the chapter, and then we'll be ready to return and discuss this sixth trumpet blowing a little more carefully. Revelation 9, verse 13. <clears throat> and the sixth angel sounded, and I heard a voice from the four horns of the golden altar which is before God, saying to the sixth angel which had the trumpet, Loose the four angels which are bound in the great river Euphrates. And the four angels were loosed, which were prepared for an hour, and a day, and a month, and a year, for to slay the third part of Minyan. And the number of the army of the horsemen were two hundred thousand thousand, and I heard the number of them. And thus I saw the horses in the vision, and them that sat on them, having breastplates of fire, and of jacinth, and brimstone. And the heads of the horses were as the heads of lions, and out of their mouths issued fire, and smoke, and brimstone. 
By these three was the third part of men killed by the fire and by the smoke and by the brimstone which issued out of their mouths. For their power is in their mouth and in their tails. For their tails were like unto serpents and had heads, and with them they do hurt. And the rest of the men which were not killed by these plagues yet repented not of the works of their hands, that they should not worship devils and idols of gold and silver and brass and stone and of wood, which neither can see nor hear nor walk. Neither repented they of their murders nor of their sorceries nor of their fornication nor of their thefts. And thus to revisit verse 13. John quickly makes note here that as the sixth angel proceeds to blow the trumpet, we have already gleaned that in the previous five times, dramatic and vivid imagery is thus before us, and the same is true again. For we notice that immediately John hears the voice, but it's an unusual source. Again, verse 13, the voice is from the four horns of the golden altar. Now, an altar by itself is an inanimate thing. It doesn't live. And yet John hears, as it were, a voice that comes indicating most carefully that the source is again of divine nature. What is about to transpire is the absolute directive and will of God. That throne is before, again, the throne room of God. But what's more? We notice a command is given in verse 14. That voice instructs that angel that had just blown the sixth trumpet to do the following. Loose the four angels which are bound in the great river Euphrates. We have often noted the Euphrates River plays a significant role in biblical history. And here another reference is made to that rather significant river in the eastern part of the world. In regard to the Euphrates, Immediately we notice that angels, at least in description, were bound at that place, and the command is for them to be loosed. We may immediately wonder what that means. Let us hold on to that thought until we arrive at some observations in just a moment. But wouldn't it be fair already to again emphasize the fact that this is the directive and will of God? These angels now, in the sense of being loosed, are not to invoke or work things that are not known to God. God is in control yet one more time. In verse 15, we notice that these angels had been bound, if you will, or prepared, as the text indicates, for a specified length of time. And isn't it an oddity in the way it's stated? For a year, a month, a day, and an hour. Now, quite often we've noted in Revelation the important fact that Time is often quoted or stated in a prophetic fashion, as it was back in the book of Ezekiel. There, one day, figuratively represented, an hour, uh, represented a year. Well, here, what is this indicating? A year, a day, a month, and an hour. If we proceed to convert all that into days and then substitute the word year for day, we arrive at some number between about... 391 and 395. So if that approach is taken, we should then consider a time frame lasting a little bit less than 400 years, around 393, 395 years. We shall ask in a moment if there's any historical significance to, to in fact, that length of time. But perhaps one final observation on this, on this screen. The mission in verse number 15 is clear, to slay the third part of men. The third part. 
immediately we may wonder whether or not those angels carried out that commandment. And isn't it interesting that in fact they did. For in the very next verse, verse 16, we're told that the number of this host prepared to do battle and to engage in this conflict was vast. The number in the King James reads 200,000 thousand. In the Greek text, the numbers to be represented are myriads. The idea is, if you and I were to take it literally, it's 200 million. But we appreciate that, again, in a symbolic fashion, a large host is being referenced. And thus, one more time, reference is made to a very vast array. We shall again ask about the fulfillment thereof in a moment. But perhaps another detail or two first. Looking at verses 16 and 17 with me, note something particular about the horses. Verse 17, riding on these horses were those who wore breastplates, and these breastplates were such that they were of fire and of jacinth and of brimstone. And I would ask you to note the colors with me. Fire, jacinth, brimstone. We have the fire representative of a deep red. Jacinth, in fact, in the Greek represents a deep blue. And finally, sulfur, which is the actual word present in the Greek that's translated brimstone, is yellow. So we have red and blue and yellow. Might we hold on to the thought of those colors for just a moment? And then, observing perhaps the next idea, these angels did in fact accomplish their mission in verse number 17 and 18 because a third part of the men were slain or killed, especially by those things noted namely the smoke, the brimstone, as well as, in verse 18, the fire. And then finally, note that the power is to be stated to be in both their mouth and their tail, in verse number 19, and the whole scene rather quickly closes, stating that the remaining two-thirds that were not killed nonetheless refused to repent of the various sins of which they were guilty, and that leads us to a very vital and powerful concluding set of observations. Would you note some of these thoughts with me as we look at them one by one? First of all, in light of what we've seen, we had carried the history of the Roman Empire significantly to the 8th century in last week's lesson. As we pick up the scene tonight, notice now that the Western Roman Empire had already fallen. Remember, it had crumbled by virtue of the Goths, the Vandals, the other Germanic tribes that came against it. And as that took place in the latter part of the 5th century, Rome then brought us to the fifth trumpet blowing, that of the Arabs, up until 782 A.D. But what about this period of time tonight? Do we find historically a set of times when a particular invading force to Rome was withheld at the border of the Euphrates River and done so for a particular period of time, but then once unleashed, taking a little less than 400 years to reach the final conclusion of the destruction of the Eastern Roman Empire. Not only is there coincidentally such a thing, history records it for us. I would ask you to note very briefly the notes that I've made. The Turkish Empire. Sometimes in history we still call that the Ottoman Turks. O-T-T-O-M-A-N, Ottoman, and then space Turks. That empire was extraordinarily vast. They had, in fact, multiplied themselves greatly and controlled much of the eastern part of the land area east of the Euphrates River. 
However, in the early part of the second millennium AD, their forces were such that they began to desire to move westward. At the border of the Euphrates River, for some reason the history doesn't yet know, they were held there or restrained there for about half a century. They didn't proceed in their journey westward. Seems a bit interesting in light of verse 15, doesn't it? These angels bound at that location. But notice also, in the year 1057, 1057 A.D., as they came across the Euphrates for the next period of some 395 years, they had a great deal of control over that Eastern Roman Empire and ultimately crushed it. But might we note something interesting about that? 395 years, that corresponds almost identically with this prophetic time frame that we noted just a moment ago. And what's more, wouldn't it be fair to say that during that same period of time, history records dramatic and powerful events, perhaps most carefully, the Crusades. Maybe we've each read about them and the terror that was inflicted and the defense of Christianity that was attempted in the Crusades. All of that happened in this period in which the Ottoman Empire was expanding its borders. And finally, in 1453, Constantinople, the capital of the Eastern Roman Empire, was crushed and defeated forever. It's a rather amazing thought when we consider that that time frame and that period of time can be summarized in these following remarks. We have looked somewhat carefully at them. They do seem to have historical characterization, but please note with me again some timely lessons even for you and me today. Would you look back and note with me carefully again, verse 19. Where was the power in these particular horses as they're described in their riders? We notice that the colors were of, of particular note. But isn't it also true that the text says their powers in their mouth as well as in their tails? We learn a rather dramatic thing there, do we not? The fact that not only does this have meaning from a physical, militaristic point of view, but it also has meaning when we consider that out of the mouth is able to come that which is either for truth or against it. And that takes on great meaning when repentance in verses 20 and 21 is not forthcoming. God brought this evil upon the Eastern Roman Empire, allowed it to happen, with a hope and aid that others who were visible and observant of it would then repent of their wickedness and thus proceed to follow him. But the text notes in verses 20 and 21 that they did not repent. Those who should have learned a lesson from it did not do so. Today, what about you and I? God is a God of great love as we studied this morning. And in that love, He chastises those whom He loves. In fact, in, Revel in Hebrews chapter 12, we are expressly told that God chastens those who are His own children. Any loving parent will discipline and chasten a child that they love. The Bible informs us that if we don't discipline and chasten them, in fact, we don't love them the way we ought to. God, as a loving parent, is the same. He indeed is our loving Heavenly Father, and He perhaps allows chastening or discipline to come upon us with the hope and aid that it will cause us to understand something of error in our life and make appropriate repentance and correction thereto. How sad it is then when we rebel against Him and do not even take the kind discipline that He ex extends to us. 
Maybe you and I can remember times in our life when we stubbornly refused to submit to his will, striving to go our own way instead. And all the while, we ultimately come to our senses like the prodigal son did in Luke 12, or Luke 15, rather. And when that happened, that son came back to the father's house, knowing that that's the place he ought to have been and the place he needed to be. So too it is with you and me. There's no better place to be, and that's where we should be, in our Father's house. Perhaps also in those last verses, it would be fair to observe the notion of evil and how wicked it truly is. Sometimes when those affairs and things happen on earth, how dramatic. How evil and how wicked we see things that are, and yet we know there's an overruling power of God who is able to vanquish and conquer and through His will that is promised. We need to be but faithful stewards of that will. As that chapter closes, looking at both the historical standpoint as well as these other lessons to be gleaned therefrom, chapter 10 now stands before us. In chapter number 10, we notice interesting that this chapter is a bit brief. It really doesn't have very many verses. And the lesson, though, is so interesting in that it's a dramatic shift from where we've just ended chapter 9. With that being said, I would ask you to read with me chapter number 10, all 11 verses. And then at that point, we'll return and continue our discussion. And I saw another mighty angel come down from heaven, clothed with a cloud. And a rainbow was upon his head, and his face was as it were the sun, and his feet as pillars of fire. And he had in his hand a little book open, and he set his right hand upon the sea, and his left hand upon the earth. And cried with a loud voice, as when a lion roareth, and when he had cried, seven thunders uttered their voices. And when the seven thunders had uttered their voices, I was about to write. And I heard a voice from heaven saying unto me, Seal up those things which the seven thunders uttered, and write them not. And the angel which I saw stand upon the sea and upon the earth lifted up his hand to heaven, and swear by him that liveth forever and ever, who created heaven and the things that, are there, that therein are, and the earth and the things that therein are, and the sea, and the things which are therein, that there should be time no longer. But in the days of the voice of the seventh angel, when he shall begin to sound, the mystery of God should be finished, as he hath declared to his servants the prophets. And the voice which I heard from heaven spake unto me again, and said, Go and take the little book which is open in the hand of the angel, which standeth upon the sea and upon the earth. And I went unto the angel, and said unto him, Give me the little book. And he said unto me, Take it, and eat it up. And it shall make thy belly bitter, but it shall be in thy mouth sweet as honey. And I took the little book out of the angel's hand and ate it up. And it was in my mouth sweet as honey. And as soon as I had eaten it, my belly was bitter. And he said unto me, Thou must prophesy again before many peoples and nations and tongues and kings. In chapter number 10, you and I have just read the entirety and the extent of that rather brief chapter. The greatness to be seen is again so dramatically different from chapter 9. Let's focus the spotlight then beginning in chapter number 1. John saw, and notice the chapter begins with the word and. We are still underneath the umbrella of the blowing of the sixth trumpet. 
we have not yet moved to the seventh one. That will not come until chapter 11, verse 15. In that sense, though, you might note I've entitled this segment of the lesson, The Sounding of the Sixth Trumpet, Part 2. Chapter 5, chapter 9 ended in a rather dramatic battle scene. But this chapter does not describe a battle scene. We rather see an angel who holds an open book, and we see John commanded to go and take that book out of the angel's hand, and we also see him being told to eat it. As we revisit this idea, notice again in verse 1 how this angel is described. John said he saw another mighty angel come down from heaven. The things described here again have divine import. They are of God's design. They are, in fact, taking place with His divine approval, clothed with a cloud. Immediately, we may remember that clouds often played great roles in the biblical history. Our Savior, upon His ascension, ascended in a cloud, Acts 1, verses 9 to 11. In, chapter, in the Old Testament, when Moses ascended Mount Sinai, a cloud rested upon that great and noble mountain of ancient lore. Furthermore, a rainbow, verse number 1, was upon his head. We've seen the rainbow earlier, back in chapter number 4. It was over the throne of God. There are some who have thought that perhaps this angel here was Christ. I do not think so. Jesus, to my knowledge, never in all the Holy Scriptures is called an angel. Angels and Christ are two different entities and two different beings, and Christ rests in power and majesty above any angel. This was not Christ. Another angel is under description, mighty indeed, but not the Son of God. This chapter, as verse 1 closes, face was as it were the sun and his feet as pillars of fire. This angel was portrayed in greatness and gloriousness and power and majesty. This is an artist's rendition of the scene before us. We see this artist's depiction of this angel with notice the rainbow over his head. One foot resting upon the land, the continent if you will. Another foot resting upon the sea, upon the waters of our planet. And we see this dramatic picture of the greatness of this one. And if you can see the detail, you may notice in his hand is a little book, but it's open. We shall return, perhaps, and note some of the details of those scenes and events. Let us look at that then again. Again, what John saw, verses 3 and following. That little book open in his hand. We already have seen now that there was a seven-sealed book in the right hand of God back in chapters 4 and 5. This is a different book. That book has now been loosed. The seven seals have been loosed. This is a little book. It is already open. That's a significant idea. We shall see the meaning of it, in fact, in just a moment. I would ask you to note verses 3 and 4. Here we have one of the most intriguing scenes in all the book of Revelation. We notice that when this angel cried with a loud voice, seven thunders uttered their voices, and John was prepared to write what those thunders had uttered. But he was told not to do it. Seal up the things, he says in verse number 4, and write them not. You and I may thus invest a tremendous amount of time wondering what it was that those thunders uttered. It is useless speculation. We do not know. 
In fact, several of those whom I consulted in terms of commentators thought that they had ideas, but in the final issue and in the finality of the matter, nobody knows what those thunders uttered. We are given no hint. John was told not to write it. Perhaps that'll be a grand and glorious question we can ask our Savior when we arrive at the golden gates on that grand and final day of judgment. But perhaps you and I can quickly know that this angel had one foot on the earth, one foot on the waters. As we ask the meaning of some of these things, notice perhaps finally before we look at some observations, in verses 7 and following, John was told to go and take the little book and to eat it. That again shall be very significant. And what's more, isn't it fair to say that its effect would be pronounced? It would be sweet to the taste, but bitter to the belly. All of that will have great significance and meaning. And perhaps it's time to look at some of those observations. I would ask that you consider these with me. The mighty angel, as he here is described, indicates the strong purpose of God in these matters. Just as we encountered a strong angel previously in chapters 5 and 6, this angel too and what he reveals and the things that are to be found here are in fact tremendously significant in the history of our world and are greatly significant even for you and me even today. We've already hinted at the significance of the rainbow and the significance of the other physical features of this angel. What does a little book represent? This open book in the right hand of this angel. I would suggest to you that the Bible seems to fit every description and criterion related to this particular chapter. How might we say that? In what way would that be a correct statement? Well, consider these historical matters. We have noted that after the blowing of the fifth trumpet, that had carried us, and the earlier considerations of the sixth one, to 1453 A.D. We might now ask, if we continue the strain of historical study, what began to occur in our world about that time that was related to an important book? I would suggest in the opening part of the 15th century, and especially considering up until its nearness and ending part thereof, that historical feature known as the Reforma Reformation Movement began. And I would ask you to note the word that I used. It's not the Restoration Movement. We haven't gotten to that point. The Reformation Movement. In fact, in our study on Wednesday night here in a few weeks, we will stud, study carefully both the Reformation and Restoration Movements, seeking to understand their difference, as well as to see how that one aided in a way to lead to the other. But as we look at the Reformation Movement, what was the book? It was the Bible. Through centuries of time, the scriptures had been chained and bound, if you will, because they had not been shared with the common people. There were the clergy who had it in their possession, but they willfully chose not to share and to let it be made known. Here we have the fact, though, that that book was unshackled beginning at that time. The printing press was invented in 1455, and the first book to roll off the Gutenberg printing press was none other than the Holy Bible. God's Word unchained one more time so that the world could appreciate, no, and just as this angel had foot on both land and sea, all men everywhere had access to the Word of God, the powerful truths contained therein, and the exciting way that life could be molded 
into the pleasing and acceptable character of the God of heaven. As that movement began in its earnest, that sheds great light on the words that close verse number 6. Note that the statement is that there should be time no longer. You and I might be tempted to think that that's rushing to the end of time, but in the Greek language that isn't the necessary conclusion. That word time can mean delay. That is, there should be no more delay. My word should be unbound one more time, and the world shall have easy access thereto. The greatness of this movement begun by Calvin and others in that time quickly redounded into the greatness of that later movement, the Restoration One, and you and I to this day still are the beneficiaries of it. The unleashing then of the Word of God leads us to verses 8, 9, and 10. Isn't it significant that even here John, throughout much of this book, he's been shown to be a spectator, watching this because he's told to write what he sees. But now John is invited to take part in the scene. In the audience, if you will, he's told, you come up and take the book out of the angel's hand. John did that. He went to the angel in verse 9 and said, Give me the little book. And the angel did so and said, Take it and eat it up. It'll be sweet to your taste, John, but bitter to your belly. Verse 10 informs us that John took the book and ate it up. And just as the angel had said, he found it sweet to the taste, but his belly became bitter. And the chapter quickly closes when the angel said to John, Thou must prophesy again before many peoples and nations and tongues and kings. Oh, how sweet is the Word of God. Oh, how sweet, in fact, it is to our taste. And for those who love the Lord and strive to impart it to their life, it remains a sweet thing. But oh, how often we notice that it isn't sweet to all. Though they may hear in their interest to do elsewise, to do their own thing, it becomes a bitter pill to swallow when they refuse to repent. Perhaps that hints at some of these remarks. I would ask that you think about these with me. These notes that help us appreciate some two rather valiant lessons. First, when John was not allowed to disclose what those seven thunders uttered, may you and I understand today that there still continue to be foolish questions in the world of religion. There are some things you and I will never know on this earth. Thankfully, we do know that we have the pathway to heaven. And many of our questions might well be answered, of course. But it's still true that the secret things belong to the Lord, Deuteronomy 29, 29. In fact, there are today those that wrestle over religious questions that you and I will never fully understand and know in this life, for the Scriptures have not revealed it. Do you remember in several years ago, there was that constant confrontation when those wrestled with the thought, how many angels can stand on the head of a pen? We don't know, and it's a foolish question to think that brethren would discuss such a thing as that to any great length and detail. It's a meaningless question. Didn't Paul remind Timothy that there are foolish and unlearned questions and we ought not be given to vain jangling, the very words he uses in 1 Timothy 1? Even so today, the wise thing is to invest our efforts on looking deeply into those matters which are of salvation import and which the God of heaven has answered. For instance, we do know that baptism is necessary for salvation. The Lord has said so. There's no need to discuss that at any length if we believe what the Bible says. But notice yet another point. 
this eating of the book as told John, as John was told to do. I would ask that you notice an interesting application of that to my life and yours. You and I would not think very easily about taking this book and literally trying to ingest it and eat it. We could do that, of course. The acids in the stomach are strong enough to dissolve the pages and the ink and the things contained in it. But there's a much deeper spiritual meaning than that. In fact, some various passages in the Old Testament hit at it, hint at it so strongly. In Jeremiah 15, 16, Jeremiah was told by the God of heaven in such powerful and wonderful ideas. As God spoke about his own word, he talked about how wonderful it was to consume and to eat it. The words that I've spoken, Jesus in fact said, the same shall judge me in the last day. What about that text in Ezekiel chapter 3, chapters 2 and 3 in fact, where Ezekiel was also told by God, take this book and eat it up. But he didn't stop there. He said, you take it and prophesy with it. Clearly, God's word was intended. There, Ezekiel was to be a powerful and noble prophet preaching to those who needed to repent. The only way he could effectively do that was to be a thorough student of the book himself. In Psalm 119, verse 103, the sweetness of God's word stated again, Thy words are sweet to my taste, yea, sweeter than honey to my mouth. Oh, how sweet God's word is. Thy words were found, and I did eat them. And thy word was unto me the joy and rejoicing of mine heart. You and I too, you see, must be thoroughly conversant with the word of God. Did you note with me that in the very last verse, verse 11, John was told after eating it, you will prophesy to nations, peoples, kings, and tongues. So you and I too today, if we are ever to be effective stewards in the kingdom of God, we must have taken this book and spiritually consumed it, thoroughly familiar with it, able to rightly divide, teach it to others, and share with them book, chapter, and verse to answer their vital questions of eternity and of salvation. Take this little book and eat it up, John. You and I, in like figure, must meditate day and night on the Word of God, Psalm 1, verse 2. Oh, how love I thy law, it is my meditation all the day, Psalm 119, verse 97. In what way do you and I keep sin at bay? Thy word have I hid in mine heart that I might not sin against thee, Psalm 119, verse number 11. To say all that is to say that there's a rather gigantic lesson then here for you and me too. Not just historically in reference to the Reformation movement, but daily in the life of Randy Bybee and in your life as well, to be knowledgeable of this book, to be so conversant with it that we are able to use it in a powerful way. In fact, as we noted a minute ago, when temptation comes, what is the most effective way to fend it off? What did our Savior do? In Matthew chapter 4, at each temptation that Satan hurled at him, the Lord began with, It is written. It is written. It is written, he said, and quoted passages each and every time. As you and I thus are familiar with the Word of God, we will be in a position like he, that we too can use passages in context and effectively to aid us to live a life of godliness such that sin will be kept at bay. All of that perhaps leads us to one other picture. We have seen the blowing of these trumpets. 
you'll note that as these seven angels are blowing the trumpets, we have looked to this point at six of them. There's still one more to go. When we arrive at the consideration of the seventh one, we shall notice that we will have hurriedly raced until the finality of things and perhaps our mind already questions and wonders what's going to happen. Hold on with me. We will look at perhaps one of the most challenging chapters in all the book in Revelation chapter 11 come next Lord's Day evening. But for right now, in conclusion, would it not be fair to say that back in chapter 6 when the saints cried, How long, O Lord, until the cause for which we died shall be vindicated? God, by the time of the blowing of the sixth trumpet, has vindicated their cause. The Roman Empire has crushed. It's been a thousand years, admittedly. But that empire was no more. Pagan Rome suffered because she did not repent. Pagan Rome, in her rebellion against God, met the final onslaught of his wrath, and the same fate shall happen to those today spiritually who still refuse to bow in submission to the greatness of Christ Jesus. Let this mind be in you, which is also in Christ Jesus, who, though being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, nonetheless was made in the form of a servant. And as such, in Philippians chapter 2, we read in verse 11, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow, of things in heaven and things in earth and things under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Have you made that confession in your life? Just prior to baptism, the asking of that great question, do you believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God? It is so sweet to hear a person say, Yes, I believe that Jesus is the Son of God. And when they believe that with all their heart, they are those thus in position to have the sealing and thus protected from the greatness of the wrath against those who have not repented. And at that moment, they're then baptized and their sins are washed away. Tonight, if you need to do that, what a joyous day it could be for you. In fact, you could then proceed to eat up this little book and use it day by day to walk properly before God. But please note that if you refuse to do so and your death arrives and comes, or if our Savior returns, you then depart this physical life not ready to meet Him. You would be one of those who haven't repented, and thus your eternal fate is sealed. You see, you will be apart from Him forevermore. For Jesus, we are told, is coming back to render vengeance on them that know not God and obey not the gospel. If you need to obey the gospel tonight, don't wait any longer. Come even now while together we stand and while we sing.